welcome to episode three of Hark, the 87th Precinct podcast. This uh, episode is looking at Ed McBain's third book in 1956, The Pusher, the third of his initial three-book contract for this series, and we'll get into that in a little bit. Uh, I've got some stuff to talk about first here. Um, We've had a little bit of communication about uh, Ed McBain through the Twitter feed, at Hark87podcast, from a writer called Michael Slade, whose Twitter handle is at Mountie Noir, who writes crime books about... Mounties? Mounties, yes. I believe Mounties feature in it. uh, In them, rather. He said, basically, if there was no Ed McBain, there'd be no Michael Slade. Read him from 1961 to 2005, and he's still my favourite crime writer. So he's obviously... Here, here. Yeah, here, here indeed. And I followed up with a question, and he... He said that McBain's Lady, Lady, I Did It turned me into a writer. That's the thriller that fused crime and horror in my 13-year-old mind. Ooh. So I'll uh, we'll perhaps ask him some uh, some more questions about that when we get to that mm, book, which is a little way down the line, I think. Oh, it's a good one, that, as well. It is a good one. I like that one. I can't remember it. So when I reread it, I'll <laughs> It'll be surprised be all over again. Yeah. I also asked if anyone had any questions for us, and... On the topic of Ed McBain, no questions were particularly forthcoming. However, on the topic of uh, anything random, we've got three questions we need to deal with here. Uh-oh. Really. So uh, Immediately? Or... Immediately. I think we get them out of the way first, oh, okay. really, before Fair we get enough. into the meat of the book. <laughs> so Amy, who I went to school with, uh, asks the very important question. And in fact, this has become uh, extremely topical from your arrival and the information you've told me. The question is, fire, friend or foe? Um, well, to that people carrier in stuck in your uh, alleyway near your house, uh, definitely for. It was a people carrier. It was a people it wasn't carrier. It was just yeah. like That's... a small family car. No, it was like a a, a medium sized kind of people carrier. <laughs> Toyota Space Cruiser. I would say it's a Citroen Berlingo, if I had to guess. Kind of. Uh, or a large <laughs> Megane. <laughs> Large McGann, the lesser but known of the McGann brothers. Wind- windowless <laughs> and with a soot finish. <laughs> yes, so there's, this is stuck in the end of the alleyway and has been burnt out, so you tell me anyway. Emitting True. smells similar to a 1980s textile factory, as I uh, commented earlier as well. It's nice Curiously, you had that. Perhaps uh, burning upholstery or something like yeah, that. Probably. Oh, yeah, it might be. Might be. So Releasing it, the chemicals there within hidden within the stuff that would choke you to death in an instant if you're in the car. Exactly. So in that case... So foe, definitely foe. Foe is, yeah. Foe. I think you have to go a little way back for fire to be, you know, the ultimate friend when you're fighting off saber-toothed tigers and uh, try to prevent being squashed by mammoths. Yeah. Or if you've got a nice fireplace and you want to stay toasty of a winter's evening. Yes. Actually, I was in a very good bookshop, the one on... um, in town that is called Reed's, mm. Reed's Bookshop. I was in there the other day, and he had his fire on. Oh, lovely. It was a lovely combination of old book smells and uh, solid fuel. It was, it was the nice. The chap in there is curiously looking younger than he did. A bit of Benjamin buttoning of the face. Obviously, a life of sitting by the fire, reading all day, every day, um, does wonders for one. Yeah, it must be great. So I think we can't really give a you know decisive answer on that, but in this particular time, and what I've seen this evening, foe. yeah, foe. Okay, All right. Second question comes from our friend uh, Nicola, Nick, and she wants to know why does my knee hurt? 
Well, we're all getting older. <laughs> Lots of me hurts all the time. If she was involved in the destruction of the uh, Bilingo, maybe... Uh... If she smells of burning up upholstery, uh, then, you know... Maybe... Don't know, there could be many old age. Yeah, old, um... Definitely old age. Old, old. It may be, it may hurt because she spends a lot of time uh, dealing with two small children and uh, that's probably takes its toll on the body. I, one could imagine, yes. If you're worried, seek advice from your doctor or some other trained professional. And we've got one last question. This gets quite deep. This is from uh, John Wallace. Excellent. And he says, has what would Beyonce do morphed into what would Vladimir do? Thanks, John. Thanks for the, <laughs> keeping the tone, tone uh, light. I don't understand the question, but I'm going to say no. I, I, I assume it's some sort of um, fairly abstract reference to, to um, Fuhrer Trump. I would have thought so. Yes, of course, because this is our first podcast recorded in the, the new golden era of the, uh, our, our dear leader. It's not our dear leader. It's no one's dear leader. But I suspect, yeah... Although I don't think we've ever particularly used what would Beyonce do as a uh, as a moral guidance point. Not personally, but you know, I think she's probably better to uh, look at than most politicians. Absolutely, that, that's... I don't mean look at physically. There, everyone. I mean, although although she's she does uh, win out in, in her styling stakes over um, Vlad. Yeah. Yeah. So, John, that's just too political. We just. I like the question, but it's just, you know, it's too heavy, man. <laughs> Neither would start a 87th Precinct podcast, so yeah, in that regard, true. both of them would be equally unhelpful. Yeah, well, yeah. I believe Beyonce's just announced that she's pregnant with twins, and there was some Twitter quip that I saw this evening was, that means there's now more black people inside Beyonce than is in Trump's cabinet, mm. which is a, a hilarious bon mot. Oh, that's very true. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> right, so... That's those orders of business. Let's get on to the book. <clears throat> Let's get on to The Pusher by Ed McVeigh. Right. right, 1956. Still 1956. But uh, the book itself set in the week running up to Christmas 1956. Or, well, we assume it's that year. Right. doesn't explicitly state it. And we've gone from a cop hater to a mugger to the pusher. And um, ostensibly it's a story about drug crimes opening with the discovery of a suicide, or so it seems, of a young boy. So, one of the first things to know is that this is the first book where Bert Kling is fully a detective and fully on a case. Indeed he is. So he's had quite a trajectory over the past uh, couple of novels. The usual running with Homicide North as well, oh, uh, yeah. early on in the book. Yeah, although in this one it's not Monaghan and Monroe, is it? It's Fred and... Somebody else, Fred, isn't Fred it? Fred and Joe, is it? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Yeah, another uh, dynamic duo. Yeah, as I do like these. I do like the Corella standoff <laughs> with with them. A masterclass in uh, in sarcasm. Do all blue bodies automatically mean strangulation? There's Corella quips. Of, uh, technicality <laughs> about knots as well, isn't there? Mm. Um, Absolutely. I'd just like to also say, while we're discussing the, the start of the, the, the book, the tone is set from sentence one, which is an absolute corker of a of, of first sentence, uh, and it is, Winter came in like an anarchist with a bomb. <laughs> it, it, it grabs your attention. It, it does, and I, I know immediately uh, what he means, or I, I can imagine what he means. Not subject as we are to New York-style winters, but um, they are famous for their 
vigorousness. Um, yeah, it's amazing. As always, the at the well, as always at the moment, and I think probably for most of the series, the first bit of the of the first chapter is the setting of the time. Really, isn't it? Description of the city in its uh, mm-hmm. in its seasonal state. Yep. Which is very important. Yep. Yeah. So it generally sets the tone. Dick Gennaro, is he mentioned in any of the previous... This is, uh, yeah, the first appearance of Patrolman Dick Gennaro, who we'll be talking about more in future books as well. So he's keeping on building the the world of the actual police force as much as he's focusing in on the squad itself. Steve Carello's back uh, after his absence in the last book as the lead investigator in this case. And there's a number of... uh, other detectives named in this, including Detective Bongiorno, mm. who was in a couple of them, I think. But I think what's at the heart of this is an interesting family story as much as anything, because we actually see a little bit more of um, Larry Burns, who is... Uh, well, Larry Burns is the son of Pete Burns, the uh, the lieutenant of the squad. And it's another good story where the family life intersects with the police work in a quite a dramatic way in this one as well so here's my point of of things that i think very interesting they're after a criminal a pusher called gonzo right we're quite used to the word gonzo now because we've heard it in relation to the muppets and we've heard it if you've read hunter s thompson or similar gonzo journalists And I was doing my research because the name is part of the the, the, the solving in this book. And they're talking about where's this name Gonzo coming from? It seems like a weird, strange thing. If you look up the word Gonzo derivation in a dictionary, most people don't credit it for anything before Hunter S. Thompson, really. They reckon it might come from an Italian or Spanish name that means fool or bumpkin. Ah. Hmm. But this book has a character called Gonzo in, and it also has a suggestion of a derivation of that as a nickname. Yeah. So I'm wondering whether the dictionary people should be looking back into uh, into Ed McBain's work to try and... I just, I just wonder whether it was originally just short for Gonzales. That's what I immediately thought. Because when I was reading the book, I was thinking, well, if, if you were trying to track down somebody called Gonzo, would not the first place you'd look were... Under G in the phone book. Well, your um, known pushers with the surname Gonzalez. I don't know. No, really, that's it was, true. Uh, I thought yeah. that passed through my head that clearly didn't pass through uh, um, Ed McBain's head. No, he had a much more complex <laughs> way of, of, of this guy. So if someone uses the word Gunsel, G-U-N-S-E-L, which is not a, a common word now, no. and I think it's probably an old word even then when this book was written, because it's mentioned as being out of fashion. Uh, but a gunsel is someone who was like a criminal with a gun, basically. Yeah. Someone who'd be hired mm. to shoot someone. Because they also mention like, the word torpedo being slang, and that's like a professional killer, gun killer, an mm. assassin. And so gunsel has been misheard and becomes gonzo, and then gonzo becomes the nickname for this drug pusher, mm. which I think is an interesting way of going yeah, about yeah. it. But I wonder whether that, any of that is based in in sort of slang of the time and whether this could be a a source of information for our dictionary people. Get on it, dictionary people. (laughs) What are you doing? Letting side down. Probably sitting around updating the entry for hashtag I shouldn't wonder. (laughs) (laughs) 
Oh, yes. <laughs> I couldn't think of anything more exciting or contemporary than the word hashtag then. Um, We've got a finger on the pulse here. Oh, definitely. It's yeah. I mean, what did we think about it in general then? What's this? It's a change from our previous two books in that we've got this family story at the heart of it. What do we reckon? I think reading back what struck me um, just generally is probably... I was struggling to remember another of the book in the series that's pretty much as single theme as this, really, because mm. quite a lot will have two plots that end up converging at some point mm. uh, in the uh, latter stages, where this doesn't particularly. It's fairly linear in the story, I, I would say. Yeah. Um, and the, think... and the fa fairly the, sim the, the single theme of drugs is uh, early on a lot to do with um, immigration, the Puerto Rican uh, element of the city, which I think you get a lot more of um, in other books where that's a bit more centre stage. Hmm. This was just kind of introduced a little bit. But, yeah, I think my impression reading it back was, yeah, the, the single themeness of it. Hmm. Right. Um, yeah, it's, it's, if that I makes mean, there sense. are still intersecting strands, but they are all definitely all about drugs. There's not sort of a drug thing and something about something totally different, apparently, which ends up being part of the same thing. I, I, I do know what you mean there, yeah. Um, it's fairly hard-hitting in its its depiction of, of sort of drug culture, I think, for the time. Mm. And, and I don't know, um, for, for sort of popular fiction, I know you, you'd probably around this time, I, I should have checked dates, shouldn't I? Uh, you'd have the early writings of uh, Burroughs on, on the subject and mm. a, a few sort of literary novelists would have been discussing this. But I think for a popular novel, it's a fairly gritty sort of depiction Things like people going cold turkey and just the actual yeah, sort of... Yeah, the cold turkey sequences in this book are really quite quite dramatic, I think. And probably for a lot of readers at the time who weren't sort of in touch with that sort of underworld, it would have probably been fairly shocking, I'd imagine. Yeah, and also it's not dressed up in, in what I think a lot of popular culture representations of, of drug use at the time, and, and in fact later were, which would have been like just sort of loads of people doing jazz language, you know... <laughs> And, and saying man a lot. Hey, daddy-o. Yeah. And it's not really doing that in here. It's it's it, it's nasty and it's it's violent and it leads to um, several deaths. And it's also not depicted as just a problem that happens in, in the ghettos or to, to hep jazz cats. It's actually kind of a thing that can affect sort of fairly well-heeled middle-class families as well, which is, is a fairly bold thing to suggest at the time too, I think. Oh, yeah, definitely. That's a good point, that. Yeah, it, it covers all sorts because it, it goes from the point of, of like kids sort of sitting around like it's not a problem. We're just sort of sitting around in the car waiting for to buy some drug, waiting for to buy some, waiting for to buy some drugs, um, waiting to buy drugs to sort of the expected things like trying to find a pusher by arranging a meet and things like that. But also then to the, the end of like death by overdose, mm. the effect it has on families, all that stuff. Absolutely. So yes, it is. It's quite a quite a punchy um, depiction of it all. And also it's obviously when the police at the time probably didn't have a narcotics specialist division, mm. so it's down to the detectives, yeah. mm. the, you know, the normal bulls to uh, to chase it up. That said, I think there is some fairly ridiculous dialogue in it, which all I right. thought... I don't know. <laughs> Example, what, what, please. Um, the scene uh, which struck me as fairly ridiculous was 
where Pete Burns goes back home and like um, uh, confronts his son, and in about thirty seconds fesses up to being a heroin addict, which just just stru- struck me as fairly. I don't know. I don't, don't think I'd, I'd stand up to much interrogation. Well, no, but it, it, it was just, yeah, I don't know. It just re- yeah, read a bit silly, did that bit. And I know quite often he, um, you know, he, he plays it both ways, doesn't he, with his dialogue mm. sometimes. But that, that struck me as a bit... Um, well, on the subject of dialogue, actually... Um, <clears throat> daft. Have you got that section there, Morgan? I think so, yeah. Um, well, you have a little look at that. Um, you have a little look at that while I say... Um, one of the characters that they first bring in to interrogate is called Ernest Hemingway, oh, yeah. which I think is brilliant. That's, and this kid's... That. His total disbelief that anyone else is called <laughs> Ernest Hemingway. Yeah. And in fact, he just does not know of, of this famous author. <laughs> um, but I was wondering about Hemingway's influence on Ed McBain. I didn't really know... Whether he would be, I've not read much Hemingway. In fact, I've only read one book, and it wasn't particularly taken. Um, but I did look it up, and, and Ernest Hemingway was a big influence on Ed McBain, oh. particularly, and this is where it relates to what you said, in the um, simplicity of his sentences and dialogue, which is what Ed McBain was talking about in a Washington Post interview from 1990. Uh-huh. Um, so he's obviously put them in that put him in there as that as a name hmm. for because he likes him. But it, it provides a good comic moment yeah, where you've got this this kid who's just completely blank when someone says <laughs> is is baffled by it. Yeah, so I like that bit. The uh, there was there's a good bit in it where Pete Burns is describing the uh, intelligence of his wife as well, uh, where she's uh, hassling him about a, a roast joint and what to do about oh, yeah. some. Um, <laughs> Some underselling by the butcher, which is quite um, amusing as well. And he, he, you know, he talks at length about intelligence, how intelligent his wife is. But uh, every now and then, some ridiculous thing can totally flummox her, such as this beef roast thing. <laughs> <laughs> but she gets her own um, good moment, doesn't she? Yeah, she, she does. She's, got a, very, she's does. got a very good line, hasn't she, when she's um, uh, keeping her son prisoner? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Another, yeah, fairly sort of feisty uh, Ed McBain female character. It doesn't tend to write women who are just complete uh, doormats or pushovers, does he, on the whole? Not generally, no. Um, And, yeah, it's it's great. So she's trying to keep her son safe during his cold turkey. And the way she does it is by whipping out a .22 revolver (laughs) that she's never used, he says, it was, you know, it says it's in a dust-covered case that it's always been in since it was given to her by her husband. Which is a lovely present, isn't it? <laughs> I love you, darling. Here's a small gun. Um, well, maybe that was the thing to do in 1956 in the city. But that's amazing because she just then literally sits down in front of her son and says, I will shoot you if you try and leave the room yeah. or jump out of the window. Yeah, with a steady hand and a level gaze. Yeah. And then, yeah, and then sort of tops it off by saying, well, now... What are you going to get your dad for Christmas? I suppose this for for the Burns family. I suppose this is as um, as much as they ever get, really. I would say I can't remember them being such in the spotlight domestically in any of the later books. I think you're probably right. I'm trying to think. I, I know there's references to the family a, a bit more in some of the other ones, and I think there's references back to this book. All right. But I don't think it's in the sense of, of any continuing story no. or anything particularly. Whereas a number of the other de- detectives obviously are uh, centre stage, you know, consistently throughout the uh, 
the entire canon, but um, yeah, this is kind of Mr. and Mrs. Burns and Sons' uh, uh, high watermark, I would say. <laughs> it is, but yeah, it does well to sort of do that initial thing of setting them up in sort of quite a comic relationship, as you mentioned there about the uh, the uh, the roast dinner, and then it becomes such a dramatic thing as well as it goes along, yep. because uh, his son Larry is tied up in, in fact, framed mm. during this. Spoilers thing is that we have no spoilers policy. Um, framed within this, and it's. I think this is one of the hardest books in the series to talk about without dropping spoilers all over the place because yeah. uh, there's certainly something we're going to have to address, which is going yeah. to be a massive spoiler if well, we don't tiptoe very carefully. Before we get to that, I think we should mention the MacGuffin for this book, the thing that, that eventually causes them to track down and find some. Well, other than the stool pigeon is the feather that they find at one of the crime scenes. And that ties into, they can't quite work out rather why that's important. But there's a, an amazing chapter where the, there's no um, diagrams in this book, the first one without any diagrams in it, but it does have a two or three pages about types of feathers and what the forensics people would do when they pick up a feather and how they would work it out. I noticed there's some jazz language there. What from uh, you? Not, not from, <laughs> no, yeah. All of that was all of that was code. <laughs> all of that was junky code. Yeah, and they talk about how they would work out where this feather was from, what they would do to treat it, what they would do to, and what conclusions they could draw from it. The joke there, I think, is that the feather can lead them to the knowledge that it comes from a pigeon. But it takes a stool pigeon to actually do the last bit of work to help them <laughs> get the guy that they need. Yeah. And it's quite a tender moment at the end with the stool pigeon. But mm. as we now arrive at what is a big spoiler, if you don't want to know, you need to turn this off, read the book, then carry on listening afterwards. And that is the shooting of Steve Carella. <gasps> drama. What? Terrible, I didn't terrible get that far. drama. <laughs> <laughs> and that's interesting in story terms but it's also interesting in, in terms of the series as a whole because as I understand it from what I know he wanted to actually kill Steve Carella at this point he did well at the end of my and um, uh, Morgan and I's um, uh, version there's an afterward by uh, Ed McBain and he kind of addresses this, this a bit and I think I, I often thought that he... I think he just had an original contract for three. Mm. And then he wrote this thinking that might be that and let's possibly kill off his main character in the spirit of, you know, mm. doing something unusual. But uh, he admits in that that he knew he would, he'd he would got more books to come. Yeah. Uh, but he still wanted to kill him off anyway in the yeah. spirit of... Thought it'd be the a fact that the... daring kind of thing to do, and it's a gestalt hero, so it, you can kill off the lead detective and, and carry on. But uh... but he was like his publisher, and uh, you know his uh, his um, friends who kind of persuaded him otherwise, and a, a couple of amended uh, lines and words in the uh, end paragraph quickly. Switched, yeah. turned all that around. The so removal, um, the removal of the sentence, but Steve Carella was dead mainly, which I think was going to be the last line of the book. <laughs> I wonder again what the meeting would have been like with the editor when he went in with the original edition of it, and it had 
you know, the original manuscript, and he's read it through, and he's, he's gone, well, Ed, <laughs> I like what you've done here. You've taken the most popular character in your book, which is probably making us quite a bit of money already, and you've killed him. Uh, I don't like it. Groff Conklin doesn't like it. I passed it to him. He had a little read-through, <laughs> and, you know, he's a good editor. Um, but obviously, as fans of the book, I know that... I can't imagine it without Steve Carella in it at all. Any of these books, it's just, he's just such a good character, such a good hero. Uh, and he does, for all that, he doesn't sit outside the Gestalt thing. He never becomes a maverick. He never mm. separates himself off from the job and the squad. So it's just a useful linchpin to have mm. in the stories. I think uh, I was just going to say that uh, obviously introduced numerous characters. I suppose you can take stock of who we know after these first three, really. And um, I was kind of surprised, because Mayor Mayer is one of the principal ever-present uh, characters, and yet he's in these first three very little, really. Yeah, he's, he's um, kind of sparingly used. He, he... And I, I, that's not how I recalled it starting, because mm. I was sure uh, he's a bit like Steve Carella. I, I, you, I... you never really get as much of the backstory mm. about him, but he's certainly ever-present... Very often partnered with Steve Carella, and yet in these first three, um, well, certainly this one, um, I don't think he's present at all. But uh, even in the other two, not uh, really. In, yeah, the, the, the second um, one, he's only really there to provide sort of a comic kind of um, interlude, isn't he? I think he does that in this book as well. He has a section about talking about um, food that tastes like cardboard. Oh, so it's, um, he's there to be part of the makeup of the squadron banter again. And you've got Hal Willis, who features more than I recall in the first three, and yet he he's quite a strange character, I think, because he he disappears for quite for big runs of books, and then comes Come, right it, back to centre yeah, stage for like then a, a series for a of books, and then disappears. Whereas mm. the, the readers will. Um, Listeners will, you know, the more books you've read, certainly, well, it's obviously Steve Carella and ever-present, but certainly Burt Kling is... Um, well, so far, I've uh, my little spreadsheet, I've been sort of doing as I've been going along, my little, my, what I've called the rap sheets. Nice. Um, the only detectives who've been in all three of them so far are, well, Burt Kling, who's not a detective, but he's in all of them in, as a character. Yep. Steve Carella isn't, he's only, a, he makes a cameo in the second one, mm -hmm. basically. Uh, Roger Haviland. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You, if you've read the whole series, you don't you tend to think of as a major player at all. Do you? I'd, I'd totally forgotten about him, and oh. I, I was surprised that he was in this one as well. Because I'm yeah. sure he just disappears. Just there's just one book he won't be in, and then you never be with him ever again. And Hal Willis, or is there? I can't remember. Perhaps I it's going to be exciting to find I out. Know, yeah. isn't it? But yeah, because Haviland in this one is, as I've written on my little piece of paper, Haviland thug. <laughs> yeah, because he's doing an interrogation on Ernest Hemingway with Corella, and Corella's like, stop it. Mm. Well, I think so, we uh, yeah we discussed uh, Havland in the last uh, podcast, didn't we? And he's um, yeah certainly no different in this. Uh, yeah, he's he's a bit one dimensional, really. He's isn't not he? a Havland... character who's about to reform at any time, is he? Whereas uh, I suppose his character largely gets replaced with uh, Andy Parker, um, who is a bit more complex, I would say, a bit less yeah, one dimensional. He's a bit of a well, I wouldn't say he's a thug, but he's of the. Uh, on the spectrum of um, of naughty people, yeah, he's uh, naughty certainly good going people. to one end, but he's not. Uh, he's not all bad. 
Um, I should make some T-shirts that say "Naughty Good People" on them. And you can all buy them. Um, yeah, so it's fantastic. It's it's another great book, and mm. as as the tailpiece to a, a three book series, which I've started to think of it as now, they're sort of bracketed together. Mm. Um, which is odd because that's only since I've started reading them in order and knowing, doing the research and checking on it. But because I know that, and they were all written in the same year, they've become this little little group. Um, I think it is a great tailpiece, and the fact that it's set set at the end of the year as well, it, it lands squarely on Christmas Day in the last chapter. That it it does do a great job of sort of saying, "Here we are. This is the bedrock for the whole thing." So, I think we need to rate it. Really using our out of a hundred shields system mm, that crikey. I so spectacularly failed to add up properly last podcast. <laughs> Can I, can I be recalled of my previous scoring? Cause, oh, uh, yeah. It needs to be comparative, really, doesn't it? It needs to be some really, sort of uh, correct relativity. The first book, Cop Hater, we ended up with a, a score overall of 86. 80. 86 out of 100. Oh, that would have been... The second one was off. 76. Mm-hmm. So you can keep that in mind. You've just got to be true to your heart. True to your heart here. So I'm going to give you a, a moment or two to think about it. and then uh, I went first last time, so it's, it's uh, going to be... I'll go, um, I'll... It's going to be Morgan to go first this time because... I think, so, yeah. I, think I know where I'm, I'm going. I'm doing the speaking at the one. moment. So what do you reckon out of uh, 100 police shields? How many would you let tip shield. out of the uh, squad room locker? Well, if we're saying Cop 8 is coming in at 86 shields, it's... Um... I'd find it hard to to put this um, particular entry into the series much lower, but then again, I wouldn't really want to rate it much higher. I'm going to edge slightly below. Giddy with the first one. I'm going to. I don't know. I think it's an it's an important book, so Mm. I think it deserves a a high rating. I'm going to go slightly lower to um, eighty-two shields. Ooh, eighty-two. So, Steve, I now come to you. Yeah. I'm going to go 65. Yeah, yeah I don't Ooh. like it. I don't, just, yeah, reading it back, it didn't kind of grab me as much as the first two. Um, yeah, and I did find some of it fairly ridiculous reading it back again. Well, we can have a look at that um, ridiculous bit in a minute and we'll just see how ridiculous well, it is. Oh, yeah, well, yeah, we'll come to that in a second. Not just that specifically, but... Um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's difficult to put my finger on it, really. Um, I think it's a fairly brave and quite interesting storyline for the time certainly but um perhaps it didn't have the who done it appeal enough for me oh, really that's fair which, enough. Which, no I, I understand um, that so yeah I, I, just to uh, temper the score i will oh, yes i think okay. a six and a half out of 10 is uh, well before i over have my a 45 score book then. series or whatever it is <laughs> yeah. Uh, well yeah i think we're going to have to be honest and say that a low score doesn't necessarily make a bad book, it might just mean it's... Yeah. Don't read it! <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think we're going to really find too many of those no. as we go along, are we? No. Let's be honest. I've got one in mind that I would score low, but it's not <laughs> going to be onto that one for a long time. Is that time. one of the sexy ones? I don't remember it being particularly sexy. Oh, right. There's a couple that I can think but, are probably going to take a, a notable dip. But... There might be one where it's just me going, Ugh! all the way through. That'll um, be fun. <laughs> I'll just do it once and loop it. 
But before I give my score, anyway, let's do the ridiculous bit, Morgan. So I, I, I don't know if it's that ridiculous. Oh, I, you're, you're putting me in the spotlight. I, 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 here, I see what this. you mean. It, it, it does all happen fairly quick. But yeah. There is, there's, quite, there's quite a shouting match. Um, mm. um, he's, he's pretty intense as well, Burns. So, you know, and, and his, well, he his, slaps him to the floor. His son does sound like a bit of a, a little wimp, to be you honest. Mean... So, um, but that's perhaps what made it just seem... A bit improbable. Burns slapped his son suddenly and viciously. He slapped him with an open, calloused hand that had been working since its owner was 12 years old. <laughs> and that hand slapped Larry hard enough to knock him off his feet. Uh, and then there's there's a little bit more uh, screaming and shouting and yoinking poor uh, Larry about. And then... Uh, Perhaps I just don't like Larry. I don't know. I'm not taking on Larry, either, to be honest. <laughs> He's not very sympathetic, is he? Um, and Burns says through clenched teeth, Are you a drug addict? <laughs> Silence crowded into the room, filling every corner. What? Larry asked. <laughs> He's a wimp, isn't he? There's no way he was going to last out under the pressure applied by Pete Burns. I so think it's fair enough. If Pete Burns was saying, are you a drug addict through clenched teeth, was that because he was operating it like a marionette or puppet at the time and was doing it like throwing his voice? Now there's a thought. That's a whole other angle I hadn't even considered. Imagine if throughout every, every single Ed McBain story, you had to imagine Pete Burns had a puppet on his desk next to him and always spoke through it. He has just yanked Larry to his feet and pulled him close so he could actually be operating him like a puppet. Yeah, well, I well, think it's... Yeah, I take it all back, it, it, it is completely ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, who would have put that bloody puppet in it? Uh, anyway, I will add my score to the 82 and the 65, and I was going to give it 80. Yeah, I quite like it. I think it's a sort of... It's got a, a good sense of drama about it, and the... The ending is is one that I think is a, is a good heart in mouth moment and and quite sweet as well because of the relationship between a stool pigeon and mm. and a detective which that's you know, a, very very nicely done that I really yes, like that quite well handled so let me give us our final score I'll just um, fire up Kenneth calculates every number nearly every time honestly and he's working today and he comes out at, with a score. For Ed McBain's The Pusher, brackets 1956, close brackets, of 75. That's solid, respectable score, I think. Uh, yeah, I think that's that's fair enough. Steve-O's dragged it down a little <laughs> bit. <laughs> but this is going to be the thing. It's, it's So far, these these books are all pretty, um, pretty much going along in the same way, written very quickly, with the same attitude and the same, the same mm. energy. So it's no surprise that they're not massively far apart, mm. really. I don't. Think. No, absolutely. Okay. I need to build plenty in for the rip snorters to come. Yeah, yeah that does, you need to have leeway to go above, and we also need plenty of room to go down, just in case we need to. Absolutely. Yeah. As he starts to play around with the series a bit more and try out different things, then I think we'll probably find that our opinions on these diverge a bit more, won't we? So, yeah, it's going to be interesting. Right, that's the pusher. But the next book is the Con Man which we will also accompany our podcast for the, for that book with a watch of the first episode of the 87th Precinct TV series, Ooh. which is known not as the con man, but as the floater, which is nice. <laughs> horrible title. Um, but we'll watch that and, and do a little... No, it's not very nice. I didn't think it was a crime, but... Uh... <laughs> Just, yeah, I've checked your diet. <laughs> Um, Lots of prawn crackers is uh, a 
common cause, <laughs> some of our listeners may know. Are you suggesting our listeners are all eating bags yeah. of Chinese? <laughs> um, have you ever eaten an entire bag of prawn crackers? No, um, but I know some of you have, so, um, yeah. And, yeah, scrape him down off the ceiling. <laughs> anyway, so we'll be a, that'll be a little bonus thing there because we'll get a chance to have a look at the uh, one of the first... Um, oh, what's, I can't even think of the word. Television we'll programmes. Televisual representations. Yes, moving picture version of these characters. Um, sadly... It seems very difficult to get hold of the films of the first three, but all all of the first three books had films made of Ooh, them. Um, but they seem very hard to come by. So if anyone knows, then let us know. But otherwise, we'll have a look at the TV series. And until next time, I'm going to say goodbye, as is Mr. Morgan Brown. Goodbye. And Mr. Stephen Royston. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye.